Hi, welcome to the Prescription Podcast. On this show, we present to you up-to-date facts on medical-related topics. We are your hosts. I'm Ian, a surgeon. I'm Zichin, a gastroenterologist. We're both practicing in Kuala Lumpur. We are Apple and Spotify Podcasts. Please follow us for updates on new episodes. This podcast was created with the intent of creating awareness on current health issues in the public. Please do still consult your doctor if you have any doubts. And today, we are on Season 3, Episode number 4. And we are talking about kidney stones. So our guest speaker today is Dr. Lim Li Yi. She is a urologist currently practicing in Hospital Chancellor Tunku Mokris, UKM, Kuala Lumpur. Welcome, Lim. Thanks for joining us today in our podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, today we're going to... Actually, the last two episodes, we were talking about kidney. So we talked about kidney disease and then we're talking about dialysis. We thought it would be a good topic to talk on today, uh, basically kidney stones. So... To kickstart things, maybe we can just tell the audience a little bit, you know, what people or, you know, what's, what amount of population in Malaysia has kidney stones, if you know roughly. Kidney stones are quite common in Malaysia, but unfortunately, we don't have much data directly from our country. But if we look mm. at prevalence Asia, it's probably around 10 to 20%. Uh, Western country probably hovering around about 15 to 20% as well. Mm. Okay. Is there any predominance between differences between male and females? I think back in 2018, I think HUSM did publish a paper. They mentioned that the male to female ratio for stone in Malaysia probably is about 1.3 for male versus 1 in female. So slightly higher in male than female. Hmm. I think maybe we can just describe to our listeners a little bit. First things first is, I mean, I'm aware. Uh, maybe you like tell them like the different types of stones that <laughs> there are. Patients come with different types of kidney stones. We can start off with that and we'll just dive in a little bit deeper after that. Okay. Um, there are many types of stone composition. The most common one are the calcium-based stones. And uh, so we mm. also have non-calcium stones such as uric acid, cysteine, and we have something called struvite stone, which are infective in nature. So in Malaysia, mm. um, probably the highest, I mean, the most common stone are calcium oxalate, uric acid, and the infection stones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the next question to follow up is how and who gets what stones? <laughs> this is a little bit hard to tell. I mean, in generally, mm-hmm. our populations, this, the three types of the stone are the common one. But uh, yeah. elderly with comorbidity, especially female or poorly controlled diabetes patient, tends to get more infective related stones. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. younger patients with some metabolic diseases, or some GI, uh, gastrointestinal diseases that causes some form of malabsorption, this group of patients tends to get calcium stones. There's a mm-hmm. special group of pediatric population, they do get things like a very rare cysteine stones, but those are congenital metabolic diseases. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Those are the risk factors that you mentioned, but what are the commonest ones that you actually seen? You know, we always hear whether this is myth or facts, but you know, you don't drink enough water and then you get kidney stones. Uh, that is true to a great extent. <laughs> I mean, stone form and there's very high concentration of solutes in the urine and uh, this high concentration of solutes, they crystallized. And one of the reasons of why you get high concentration of solute is dehydration. Of course, other diseases mm. such as metabolic diseases, gastrointestinal diseases, or some congenital diseases do tip the balances and uh, causes mm. this uh, supersaturation of cons- uh, solute and form stones. I see. So, you know, throughout our podcast till today, obesity has 
top, the most, like the famous problems in all our topic. Is it a problem in kidney stones? Not directly. Indirectly, mm-hmm. maybe. If uh, you have high intake of animal fat, protein, purine, which is high in uric acid, I mean, they have an indirect relation with obesity. And uh, this type of diet do increase your risk of having stones. Mm. So again, it's still back to the diet that really contribute that the background of the things that actually contributes not directly obesity that's causing it. Yep. Yeah, but not, nice. not not completely as well, right? I mean, because, you know, it's a mix and match of things. I mean, if you're talking about, I mean, I think we're diving a little bit deep into this, but calcium is also due to how it's being processed in the body and all, all a bit too much. And uric acid is also because of some problems of the body processing and hence producing maybe more in the urine. Yeah, so may may not some people may eat all the meat in the world and still not have high uric acid or form stones. So to their luck, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yep. Okay, so how do we know that stone? That what do they usually complain of? Um, unfortunately, most patients with stones are quite asymptomatic. Uh, nowadays, uh, many stones are discovered incidentally through uh, X-rays, ultrasound, or CT scan done for other reasons. Small mm. stone tends to cause a bit more symptoms because as they move down the urine passage, they tend to cause pain, and um, it's what we call as a colic pain. So it means that it comes and goes and comes and goes. It can start at the mm-hmm. back or near the loin there and then move all the way down to groin. And for men, it tends to move down to the scrotum as well. And uh, when it gets stuck, the pain actually tends to I mean, become more constant. Occasionally, uh, when the stone block, the urine accumulated and get infected. So patient can get fever. Large stone, on the other hand, they are relatively without symptoms unless they grow up to the size that they block the urine passage or they become infected. So mm-hmm. some patients present as a non-functioning kidney means that the stone have blocked the kidney and blocked the urine to the extent that the kidney no longer functions. And uh, they, at that point, they either present with pain or some patients come with very, very severe infection. They get very ill, get very sick. And uh, rarely we get patients with uh, stones either on both sides or on the good side they have, uh, the, on the good kidney, that they get acute renal failure. So they come in with failure symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, generally unwell. But those are a little bit rare. Mm. I see. So correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. You mentioned about when the small stone that travels down the uh, urinary tract, that like you get um, more obvious symptoms that will probably make the patient present to the to see a doctor. And those incidental ones are sometimes, you know, most of the time those in the kidney. So does that mean that in when they're in the kidney, they're not big enough to cause trouble or problems like you mentioned just now, like the complete blockage and infection and all that? they are pretty much asymptomatic, meaning no symptoms, no pain. Correct. So that's why stones mm. that are small sit in the kidney, not moving at the location that they are not at much risk of moving down the urine passage, sometimes can be mas- uh, managed conservatively. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry I might have missed this because was, all I could think of was to drink water. Uh, but did you mention about blood in the urine as well as one of, of, one of the uh, signs or symptoms? 
Yeah, but it's usually painful, right? It's painful blood in the urine most of the time. Painless blood in the urine would be something else that we would be worried about, which we won't cover here today. Yep, if it's painless, then we tend to we actually have to investigate it for other causes before we attribute to the stone mm. that is sitting in the kidney. Mm. All right, so I think most of the time, whoever patients that we see are basically present with either pain and, and loin to groin pain, painful urination, or blood in the urine, right? These are the commonest presentations. Yeah, I think those, without a doubt, those patients will come to see the doctor because as far as I know, I've spoken to many of these patients and, you know, women tell me it's worse than childbirth. So I'm pretty sure they won't sit still at home and wait for it to pass. But what about those patients who have incidental findings of stone? What should they do? Should they hang tight? Should they see someone? Um, They definitely need to see a doctor. Let us evaluate okay. and see that whether this is a stone that we can manage conservatively mm. or something that we need to intervene. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think we won't talk so much of how you would manage conservatively, but basically maybe you could tell us uh, what are some of the treatment modalities maybe or what are the kinds of treatments that you give because it varies, right, to quite a, a fair bit from medication to basically hydration to painkiller. And, and maybe you can just tell us a little bit more in depth. What do you kind of runs through your mind as you see a patient? What How you treat in what kind of scenario? So stone management tends to depend, uh, there are a few factors. I think number one is what is the stone size? Two is where is the location of the stone? And three is whether you have stones in one side of the kidney or both sides of the kidney. And then fourth is depending on your kidney functions. So if it's a small stones at the distal part of the uh, urine passage that we think that you can pass out spontaneously, those are the patients that we can give some medication and painkiller and mm -hmm. monitor the patient closely and see whether the patient passes out the stone spontaneously. For those mm -hmm. that sit within the urine passage, that we know that the stone is quite big, uh, patient is still in severe pain despite all the treatment that we're given, or although they are without symptoms but their kidney function are abnormal, or on the scan we can see that the kidney has already become swollen, those group of the patient mm -hmm. will need some form of interventions. So we can mm. either blast the stone from outside the body or we do okay. it from inside. If we do it from mm. outside, we have a shortwave therapy that can send shortwave through the skin, through the fat, and then to reach the stones. And um, it tends to, we can do it under local uh, some sedation or with just some simple painkiller. Sometimes it may mm -hmm. need multiple sessions because it does, I mean, the shortwave need to travel through quite a fair bit of distance in order to reach the stone. So effectiveness mm. may decrease as the stone get harder or if the stone is big. If we okay. blast the stone from inside, uh, we tend to put out different type of scope going through the urine passage and reach the stones. Once we reach the stones, we have multiple ways to break it. Either with things like laser, which is commonly heard, or we can use mm. things like a pneumatic little tripter, so air-charged little tripter, or we can even use things like ultrasonic to blast the stones. Mm. Okay, so I assume any of these procedures are done, are they like done under general anesthesia or, you know, are they kind of awake or sedation? So uh, if it's the external shockwave, it's usually just with some mm -hmm. simple sedation or painkiller. Scope procedures, mm -hmm. majority are done under some form of anesthesia, maybe spinal anesthesia means the half body or general anesthesia, full body. 
That would depending yeah. on the patient morbidity, exactly where is the stones. Their disease and whatnot. Yeah, I think the reason why I ask this is because, you know, as we explain uh, what kinds of treatments there are, I don't want to scare you know, patients or potential patients into thinking like, oh my goodness, I have to do some horrifying sounding procedure and it's going to be not very memorable. I mean, it's going to be very memorable in a not a good way. Yeah, so I just wanted to ensure the that... The good thing know. about urology procedure, especially scope procedure, is that most of the procedures, you don't have a cut outside the body. We are going through mm. the natural passage. So mm. most of this procedure, at the end of it, you probably just feel a bit of discomfort on the urine passage and... Uh, Okay. Generally, patients get discharged the next day or the most two days after this. So after your discharge, what are your discharge advice actually to the patients? I mean, they will still have that discomfort from time to time, right? Sometimes, how long does it last? And uh, uh, would they still have symptoms like bleeding during the urinations and all that? Um, I think that will depending on a few factors. Number one is whether we're able to clear the stone completely. So sometimes if patients have multiple stones or the stones are very large, we may need multiple procedures. So in the event that we couldn't clear the stone completely, then they may still have symptoms. In the event that we can clear the stone completely, occasionally during the procedure, we may put up a stent, which is like a plastic tube in the urine passage for a short period of time. And uh, while they have that tube within their body, they may feel a bit discomfort. Uh, it may be when they are a bit more dehydrated or when they walk or they may feel the urge to pee throughout the day. Um, if we man once the tube is being removed, most of the time, it's just one or two days, you'll get a bit of blood in the urine, a bit residual discomfort, but it should go away within days. Mm. I see. Okay, so that's quite reassuring because I think many people have the fear of going through procedure, especially sometimes inserting instruments um, through the, the, the normal passage. Yeah? So I think um, those kind of uh, reassurance you know, actually helps in patients' preparation as well before the procedure. Mm. Mm. So I believe that you know, most of these stones are probably not a one-time occurrence, right? I mean, there is a very high chance that they can actually come back. Yeah, recovery rate, unfortunately, is very high and uh, mm -hmm. can be half as high as about 50%. So wow. um, patients with, uh, with stones before do have to take certain precautions. Um, yep. Generally, it's through diet and fluid intake. So one thing mm. is that they do need to increase their fluid intake. Although we generally say that uh, you need to drink around 2 to 3 litres a day, but with our hot weather, it's a little bit hard to judge. So we tend mm -hmm. to tell you, one of the good ways to tell that you are drinking enough is to look at the urine colour. It should be as clear as possible, as much as, I mean, looks like clear water as much as possible. So that's one way. Um, Diet-wise, there are a few things. Number one is that you need to decrease animal fat, decrease uric acid, decrease salt intake as well. And um, calcium supplementation, I mean, calcium you can take, but the thing is that uh, try not to take in excessive amount. Oh, so okay. it's fine for those with calcium stones, is it? Calcium supplement. You can still take a <laughs> calcium-rich daily product. It's just that uh, in terms of uh, supplementation, if you're having enough in your diet, then you shouldn't be taking calcium supplementation. Hmm. Okay, that's... Wow, that's a bit tough one actually because, you know, not everyone knows how much calcium they take. Uh, but if you were to place a rough amount, or would you just say following the current recommendations, 
um, that's the amount of calcium that they should be taking. Yep. I think in general, the recommendation is that you take around two to three portions of calcium a day. So I think that one you can still keep. But the thing is that if you already have a calcium-rich diet, then uh, try to avoid supplementation unless it's recommended, recommended by doctors for certain diseases. Mm. Okay. All right. So uh, I think this is the only time that where we have a disease and uh, exercise, I think, doesn't play a part because I've never heard, didn't hear you mention anything about exercise. Unfortunately, no, right? exercise, exercise doesn't really help. In- <laughs> probably... <laughs> Probably dehydrate you dehydrate you more and if you don't drink enough water <laughs> probably contributes to it. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is the first time we actually don't advocate exercise to prevent uh, stones. But yeah, I think food, uh, the kind of intake of food. But I, I guess what I wanted to ask as well is that, you know, since there are so many types of stones, you know, is it... Actually, I kind of know the answer, but I would like to hear your answer. Do we normally or routinely analyze those stones to give us a better idea what exactly we are treating. Okay, so the recommendation is to send all the stones that we can collect and send it for stone analysis. But unfortunately, stone analysis patients do have to pay for it. And it's around $80 to $85 depending on the lab. So if Mm -hmm. the patient can afford it, we generally will recommend the patient to send it. But um, stone analysis have their own shortfall as well uh, because the instrument that we use to blast the stone, we can't actually collect 100% of the stones. So they can only tell us a rough composition of what the stone is made of. And based on the stone analysis, we were able to tell you more specific in terms of diet or what medication Mm. that you can use to prevent further stone formation. Mm. Yeah, I think then you can sort of like individualize and tailor suit your counselling to the patient, right? Yeah. So we should encourage all our patients to send. Can you differentiate it? I mean, by not sending, but morphology. I mean, morphologically, when you see the stone, can you roughly tell what it is? Not There's really. Not say that. I mean, the main reason is the way we blast the stone nowadays. Once we use the laser, the pneumatic, everything gets crushed up. So once we collect it, it's a little bit hard to tell. But on the x-ray, on the image... Just by the density of the stone, we were able to roughly get what it is. Ah, uh, okay. All right. I think we spoke quite a bit, but I think you mentioned about X-ray and image, right? You know, some of the patients, and maybe just backtrack a little bit to investigation when we diagnosed. How come some patients can be diagnosed just by X-ray? Some will need ultrasound. Some may even want to go to the extent of CT scan. How? Why? Why? How do we hmm. choose? How do we decide? Only about 70 to 80% of stones are visible on x-rays. So mm-hmm. that's why x-ray, although it is uh, is the easiest modality for stone diagnosis, but it is not it is not able to pick up 100% of the stones. So that's one. Ultrasound is good to tell us about the stone size, the location. But unfortunately, if the stone is quite lower down towards the bladder, means that at the urine passage near the bladder, because of the pelvic bone, sometimes the radiologist is unable to see the stones. CT scan is the best modality of all to diagnose stones, but unfortunately, CT has radiation. So we tend to limit the use of CT scan. Mm. I, 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 thought, I thought CT scan was like first line now and go backwards, no? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Going backwards? Why do you still need to go backwards? <laughs> no, uh, because if... If, like she says, you know, if it's a kidney stone and uh, I'm, well, I'm 
I shouldn't be answering. Let me should be answering. But as far as I know, if it's a kidney stone and if it's um, something that you can do extra uh, shock wave, then you need an X-ray to see if it's actually visible on X-ray or not. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, we do have to. I mean, uh, most of the machine can. I mean, the shock wave machine we can either use X-ray targeted or ultrasound targeted, but there are some oh, centers sort of whereby sound. the machine only allow X-ray targeting. So if it's mm. only for X-ray targeting, unfortunately, stone that you can't see on the X-ray, we can't shock wave. But now some center do have yeah. one machine that can target via both ways. Though. By ultrasound. So uh, okay. Okay. My knowledge is so... many years ago. And... <laughs> <laughs> no, sometimes patients would say, right, uh, why do you put me through laser and why, do you, why can't you just put me through shock wave? Are all stones uh, suitable for shock wave? External shortwave therapy do have their limitation. So if mm. the patient body habitus is a bit bigger, it may be mm. difficult to reach the stones. And if patients have mm. certain uh, medical diseases like spine problem mm. that they cannot lie flat, or uh, if their blood vessel is slightly abnormal, then in that situation, shockwave are contraindicated, means that you can't use shockwave. Laser, although it's good in terms of, I mean, laser is only one of the modality that we use to break stones. Directly breaking mm. the stone, I mean, we have, I mean, it's easier, but uh, most of the time it do require general anesthesia. So mm. it basically, there's pros and cons of each other modality. Mm, I see, I see. So, of course, whatever it is, it will be individualized and uh, tailor suit based on that patient's profile and, and the type of stones and the size as well, right? So, depending on mm. the stone, we will usually give patients a few, I mean, few options, options. and we'll tell them mm. what are the pros and cons, what are the success rate mm. of each modality, then uh, it's up mm -hmm. to patient to choose. Okay. And I think, uh, sorry, Lim, I think we've, given you another exit viva <laughs> i'm asking you so much but i think it's it's informative for i think um the audience to just hear the basically the treatment modalities because i think one of the things that really scare people into going to see a doctor is because they're worried of how they're going to be treated and i think giving them some clarity in terms of um, what are the treatment options helps i i hope helps them to you know seek uh, a doctor earlier yep I think we have spoke quite a bit today. Thank you so much for listening in. Lim, do you have any advice or any last word that you want to say before we come to an end? Uh, I think uh, number one is that do trust the doctor. I mean, or you have symptoms of stone or you've been diagnosed with stone, at least pay us a visit. Let us have a proper mm. evaluation. Um, yep. If it's something that we can manage without any surgery, we would certainly do so. If it's one that is needed surgery, then uh, we will, I mean, nowadays with so many modality and a minimally invasive treatment available, we will try to do it as minimally invasive as possible. And generally, stone mm. surgery, the recovery rate are really good. Yep. Mm. Okay, so it's something with a very good outcome. Again, you have to present early when the symptoms occur, right? Yep. Okay. So um, with that, thank you for listening in. If you have any questions, please email us at prescriptionpod, P-R-E-S-C-R-I-P-T-I-O-N-P-O-D at gmail.com. With that, thank you for listening in. We see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.